Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you from my studio every week in Dallas, Texas. It's called a lot of things, this thing that I'm talking about that I feel that I need. Some people call it self-help. Some people call it personal development. Most people call it motivation. Why do some people love it like me and some people think it's a myth like my guest on today's show? Jeff Hayden is the author of the new and highly regarded book called The Motivation Myth. And Jeff and I are going to talk about what is behind the title of The Motivation Myth and why is it that this thing called motivation is so important to me after 27 years after I bought Tony Robbins' personal power cassette tapes and I listened to them till they broke. Jeff, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's awesome to be here. It's, it's wonderful to have you. Congratulations on the success of the motivation myth. It's doing very well. The reviews on Amazon are very, very strong. Um, and people really resonate with the way that you write and the style that you write. How did that style come to be? How did, how did your writing career manifest? Wow, what a what a torturous answer this is going to be. Um, I worked in I worked in manufacturing for twenty years. My goal when I got out of college because I worked my way through college working in a manufacturing plant. Where was that? Where, where was that? Harrisonburg, Virginia, Shenandoah okay. Valley. Great. Um, I worked for R. R. Donnelly, which the names have changed a couple times along the way, but it's the world's largest commercial printers. Yeah. Um, so I started at the bottom, worked my way up. My goal was to run a plant. I actually got to where I was running a plant, which I, yeah, that was my dream job. Mm. And after about three years into it, I looked around and thought, this isn't what I hoped it would be. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, in my words, I was discussing it. And in my wife's, I was whining about it and the fact that I didn't really like my job. And she basically said, you know, put up or shut up. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and so she said, what would you like to do? And I said, I think I would like to write. Yeah, but and you're in your, have... what are you, in your 40s now? You're yeah, in your early no, 40s? I'm, I'm 57. No, 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 at that time. Oh, at that time it was, yeah, I would have been early 40s. Children? Yeah. Oh, yeah, four. So, I mean, this is a tough lifestyle change here now. Well, there's three important keys to that. I married well, both in in terms of professional ability and also in terms of support emotionally. Nice. Um, And she just said, you know, do it for a year. Work your ass off. Do it for a year. And if you can't make a go of it, you can always go back Mm. and do something like that. Maybe not quite at that level, but I could have inserted myself into a a number of different companies. Yeah, Mm. I had enough experience and exposure. That would have been okay. Mm. Um, So... I decided I wanted to do that. I wasn't ready to quit my full-time job yet because I'm not stupid. You know, you don't go from good job to no job on hope. And so I did, you know, I thought, well, how would I do this? And I was sitting there trying to plan. And she came home one day and said, hey, I got you your first job. She'd met somebody that needed a press release for his startup. And I thought, I never read the press release. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so it's the, it is the single worst paying job I've ever had because it took me like five or six hours to write this one page press release because I didn't know what I was doing. I was looking at other press releases. I was trying to kind of copy the style. It was, it's awful, but he really liked it. And so hired me to do a couple more things. And then I, I slowly built to where I was spending every night and every weekend on that and looked at the numbers and looked at how I thought it would go. and thought, you know what? I'm willing to take a chance on this. And so I kind of cruised from there. So I got lucky and and got to write a book for someone that did really well. I was a ghostwriter. So I put 
you know, I was writing books that other people put their names on, sure. as well as speeches and articles. And I even did eulogies for people. <laughs> you know, so I'm, so I'm eulogizing guys I don't know. <laughs> and and they, they came across awesome, let me tell you. Um, as they always do. I mean, oh, yeah. rule number hey, one of a eulogy, don't make the guy look bad. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I even ghost wrote a book. The, my client wanted to have a personal finance guide for exotic dancers. <laughs> so basically, it's, you know, like money for strippers. Yes. <laughs> which you would think does go hand in hand. Um, and that thing actually sold really well and it didn't have pictures, um, which <laughs> all surprised me. So anyway, long story short, I got to that point, but I reached a, I reached the stage where ghostwriting is a lot like fight club. First rule of fight club is you can't talk about a fight club. First rule of ghostwriting is you can't talk about anyone that you've done any work for, which yeah. makes it really hard to market yourself. Yeah. You know, all you're really doing is sitting in front of somebody and saying, trust me, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm good. And that only goes so far. Mm. So my wife, again, suggested that I get some stuff in my own name. And so I cast around and thought, okay, I've got a pretty good Rolodex of people. I've got a lot of business experience. Maybe I should try to write for some business sites. And so I pitched 10 of them and only one responded. But that's all I needed. Yeah. I started, it was actually BNET at the time, which was part of CBS Money Watch. If you'll remember it, it eventually got folded in. I do. Um, but I, I got started unpaid because I just saw it as a lead generation thing. If somebody read something, liked it, saw it was a ghostwriter, needed a ghostwriter, maybe they would call me. Um, but within a couple of months, I had already started to develop an audience. They switched me over to a paid plan and I could have either gone by article or by page view. And I thought, well, this is this is ancillary income. So why not bet on myself? Why be capped by per article? Why not bet on myself? And if I do really well, I can make more money. Um, so I took that, did really well. Uh, the editor there moved over to Inc. I went with him. Yeah. I've been at Inc. for a while, do really, really well. So what started out is just, uh, mm -hmm. I'll do this on the side as a marketing tool, became a very nice revenue generation platform that also helps me advertise the fact that I ghostwrite. And that actually led to me being able to have a book in my own name because I eventually built an audience. I mean, what, 950,000 people are silly enough to follow me on LinkedIn. Yeah, so, no, not that's, a, so that's listen, cool. Unbelievable so, audience size, though, right? Yeah. Uh, the, from, it, from nowhere. I'm just this silly hick from Virginia with a terribly nasal voice and a bad haircut. It's incredibly powerful. So if I can do it. Yeah, but you were, Anybody can do it. is it reasonable to say that you were a little bit early on that as well? I mean, you got, like we were talking about earlier, you yes. got your influencer status yes. and not that I'm discounting it today at all, oh, no. but oh, when yeah. you got your influencer status, you were a real influencer, you know? Yeah. I, when they, when the program first started, I was lucky and I'm the first person to say that. Uh, the only reason that I got on the list, you know, because it was people like Bill Gates and you yeah, know, right. it was names that were on the list. But when LinkedIn would only aggregate articles from other sources for their LinkedIn today, I oftentimes appeared on that list because my ink stuff did really well and it was popular on LinkedIn. And so they looked at that and said, well, he does know how to write content that people want to read and share. And that is what we're looking for. So I got somehow I squeezed in among all the big hitters, um, which was great. And so early on, LinkedIn was feeding articles to people because the only people allowed to publish on LinkedIn were influencers. Yep. And so I built up a very large following in part because I got lucky and it was in the right place at the right time. But if I could pat myself on the back at all, I was lucky because I had shown that I could generate content that people wanted.
wanted to read and yeah, share. No doubt. So it's it's not discovered at the soda fountain counter. You know, it's the product of effort. And and like I'm sure you tell people all the time, you know, luck is the is the end result of preparation and hard work <laughs> and doing the right things. And occasionally that works out for you. Yeah, no, it's it, it's really great. I mean, the ability to duplicate that influencer status success is extremely difficult today. Yes, you know. Yeah, I would never. I don't know how. I'm not sure how. Right. I'm sure there's a way, but I'm not sure what the way would be to to a path like that. Yeah, it's tough. And then the leverageability of that though is fantastic, in particular Absolutely. on the book. So, there but, you go. but I need to get into this concept because my best friend on the planet mm-hmm. um, thinks that I am a complete degenerate weakling wuss because I need so much of the motivational stuff, personal development stuff, tapes, books, podcasts, vlogs. I'm, I need it. And he has never listened to it once in his life. And we have both had substantial success in business. Um, he, he doesn't think there's a problem with him. I have the problem. And I say to him, Man, think of how much happier you'd be if you just took on a little of this stuff. Look at yourself. You're, you're like, you, you just, it would just be like putting a plus sign next to everything you do, right? What's the right answer? Who's well, right? Isn't it, isn't it possible that you are both right? Of because, course it is, but know, I'm more right. Well, probably, because what is that thing in Monty Python? And, and I guess it's Life of Brian where he stands up and says, you are all individuals. And they all chant back, yes, we are all individuals. <laughs> I'm not. Um, but... What works for you is that you have found a process that you follow, which is searching for and consuming motivational things that make you get fired up and want to achieve. You found a process to follow that works for you. So that is your thing. His may be something completely different. It is because, because he has incredible discipline on researching, analyzing, reading incessantly, about opportunities, trends, things that are coming. So you're right in that regard. We both do have a process. They're just and, different. And if I could interrupt, because that's I'm rude. Great. <laughs> the, the key to that is neither one of you is waiting for inspiration or motivation to strike you. You are not waiting for some external force to come to you and give you all the motivation that you need to go out into the world, which when I was getting ready to write the book was something I found in most of the people that said they felt stuck. They were sitting there and waiting for this lightning bolt that was supposed to hit them because they assumed that that's how you find your passion. and That's how you find your motivation. And it gives you all the oomph you need to carry on the rest of your life. You guys don't wait. Mm -hmm. You seek out things that take you to the place that cause you to be able to get fired up and go. He has a different process that clearly works for him and is satisfying and fulfilling and makes him happy and makes him feel successful and keeps his personal flywheel going. So you've both created these flywheels of action. You're taking a different type of action than he is, but that cause you to feel motivated on a daily basis as opposed to sitting back. And that is the myth, which motivation will somehow strike you when you find your passion. I think most people create their passions through exploring something and getting really good at it and realizing that, hey, this is something I really like to do. You know, I, Do you know anyone that was 12 and realized what their life's purpose and work was going to be and actually followed that through and was really successful? Um, if you do, you're better than me because yeah. I don't. No, I don't. But I do have an opinion that at a fairly early age, a lot of people have been already on the receiving end 
of things that could produce a lifetime of happiness and purpose mm-hmm. and excitement. And then we end up maybe getting completely derailed by going to college or we get that job and we end up really not knowing. And, and for my own world, I knew when I was about 14 or so playing high school football, I knew that I should be a coach and a teacher. But I also quickly learned about the income of coaches and teachers <laughs> And it didn't, it, it disconnected with me, but guess what? Whatever. I'm 48 years old. So what is that? 34 years later, I'm coming back around to that powerful enjoyment, happy place of being a coach and a teacher again, through writing and podcasting yep. and leading my team here in the office. Well, and that's a really cool point. And that's another reason that I think people feel stuck and think that they have to find that one thing. And that one like motivating life theme is because if you start on that path, and you put, say, five years into something and you realize that, you know what, this, this, it was good, but it's not really what I want to do. For a lot of people, that thought is discouraging because they think that they've wasted all that time. Yeah. So why would I start unless I'm absolutely sure that this will carry me forever? And you, whether you planned it or not, you took a different approach. You said, all right, that is something I, I would love to do. But for right now, I need to do this. And I'm going to do that. But you found a way to work your way to where you really want to be. And all of that stuff you did along the way actually informs the skills that you have now. It's not wasted. None of that's wasted. It actually will make you better at coaching and teaching than you would have been had you started from the beginning. No, I, I agree with you completely. I want to stay on the title though and the, and the backstory behind the title of the motivation myth. So walk us through why motivation is a myth. Well, I don't think motivation itself is a myth. I think the 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 how the how you motivate yourself and how motivation is created is a myth for many people. And it goes back to what I was saying before, where they think it's something they receive, and I think something motivation is something you create. In the simplest way, here's a good example. I'm talking to Kirk Hammond, which we talked about him earlier. He's the Metallica guitarist. So I'm assuming a guy that spent 40 years in the music business, they still sell out 50,000 seat stadiums. You know, I'm assuming that's a guy who, when he was really young, had a plan and worked that plan hard. And, and he laughed at me and said, I played guitar for a little while. I got bored with it, put it in my closet. One day I came home and I happened to look at it and I thought, you know, it'd be fun to play you better. And he said, so I just started kind of playing. And he said, I got a little bit better. That was fun. It felt good because it always feels good to improve. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. one of our chief joys in life. That motivated me to go a little bit farther. And I just kept – and he basically described this cool little virtual cycle of action, improvement, happiness and fulfillment equals motivation equals more action. And it's a daily thing, not this lifelong thing. And so as long as you're following the right process that is designed to give you small improvements – continuously, you get a continual source of motivation because you're always getting somewhere. So, and it doesn't have to be this lifelong thing. So does that mean, Jeff, that we we know that we're being motivated through this process or it really is just an emotional feel good, do more of process? Yep, I, I would say it's more of the other. You know, if you're conscious of it, you can realize that, yeah, one of the reasons I like to do this is because I enjoy the kick that comes at the end of the day. If you've, if you've worked with someone, say today, and you've gotten them to a really good place and they're, you know, they're about to leap off into life much more prepared to, you know, let's take your book, which comes out next month. Yeah. If somebody reads that and that changes their life. How good does that make you feel? Yeah, Obviously sense. that's awesome. 
It makes right. me want to go to Sheboygan and speak at the Holiday Inn, right? I'll there, do that. There you go. And, and live in a van down by the river. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, um, I really do mean that, though. I, yeah. I don't want to go to Sheboygan and speak at the Holiday Inn. But if I know that it contributes to someone's motivation, I go to Sheboygan. Right. right. And that is enough to motivate you to go because the feeling you get in return, that's fulfilling. And that will make you mm. want to do it again and again yeah. and again. And it's it's that's that's basically how that works. So I think that motivation is something you can actively create. You don't have to have it. You don't have to wait for it. You just pick something that you are interested in. And I've even proven that you can pick something you're not interested in, which we can talk about if you want. But you pick something you're interested in and try to get better at it. Try to learn something about it. Actively work at that, though. Don't just be kind of casual about it. Give it a week or a week and a half, and you will always have seen some improvement. Dude, that's that my whole life. There you, you just, go. You that just little re- improvement will cause you to keep going, and you'll get your virtuous cycle of motivation going. You just described my entire life, my entire life, because my whole business career has been centered around what Rodney Dangerfield said to the professor in Back to School. Tell it to the bank, buddy, right? <laughs> the machine needs tokens, pal. you got to do shit you don't want to do. That has there been my go. entire business career, and I am not afraid of doing things that I don't want to do, whether there's motivation or not. But I yeah, do. But, but oddly enough, though, you can find that even if it's something you don't want to do, you can find some fulfillment and ne- not necessarily joy, but you can find fulfillment in it. And that's why this will sound really stupid. But I decided a couple years ago that I was going to do 100,000 push ups a year. There's no wow. personal meaning to that goal whatsoever to me. It is not something that I had set out to do forever. It wasn't on my bucket list. You know, so because we talk about goals and you're always supposed to have meaning, you know, and they're supposed to have purpose and stuff. So hey, that, Jeff, you know, I, I have to, I'm not a math major. I went to cooking school. Is that 300 push-ups a day? 374. 374 push-ups a day. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I, I just decided to to see because one of my theories not my theories one of my strategies in the book is to use the power of numbers where if it's something that if you are chipping away day after day and you just focus on the day and do the right things each day over some period of time you look back and go oh my gosh look what i have just achieved which you know is kind of in your book as well <laughs> so it's it's the set that principle so i thought okay if i want to get to 100,000 which would be pretty fun at parties to tell people that i've done I need 374 a day. It's all I need. I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I don't need to worry about next week. I just Mm. need this. So I Mm. created a spreadsheet. Mm. I would write it in every day using that Jerry Seinfeld approach of if he (laughs) writes a joke. Seriously, he he has a a calendar and his goal is to write a joke a day and he puts an X mark up and he loves looking at all the old X marks because it feels like he's gotten somewhere. Totally. So I just started doing that and I hated it at first because it isn't fun to do 374 push-ups a day. And actually I was doing 400 because I wanted a little bit of a buffer (laughs) just in case. Um, But it wasn't fun. But after a while, it actually got to be oddly fun because I could do more reps per set. I could get it done faster. I, you know, I got to where I was doing like 80 at a time, you know, and it's a meaningless pursuit, but at the same time, it was kind of fun to improve and to do that. And then it was fun at some point to look back and say, you know what? I've been doing this for nine freaking months. I got this. <laughs> and I'm almost there. Yep. And the best part of all is if something pops up now, and I use this with other things I've done too, but if something pops up now that seems really challenging, 
or like there's a big roadblock or hurdle. It's like, oh my gosh, do I have to do that? All I have to do is say, shit, I did a hundred thousand push-ups later. I can do this. Totally. <laughs> you know, and it becomes that it becomes that motivating thing of it's not that bad. I can do that. And sometimes we avoid the painful stuff because it's not as fun. But if you can do the painful stuff, that gives you that sense of confidence that carries you through tons and tons of stuff. I know why the book, your book is getting such reviews because, because they, every review talked about the storytelling and I mean, you're a great storyteller just in, in, as we're talking here. So I'm sure it comes through in the book. Look, I have my own version of what you just talked about. I do cold water swims, cold water immersion swims. <laughs> you're a better man than me. Right. But, but <laughs> listen, I'm not going to do 374 pushups a day. You're there a better you man than me. And so we each have this, you, you use the term and I couldn't agree with you more. These basically, uh, useless, uh, things now, not for probably more useful for you because of the physical fitness, building some size, feeling better about yourself. For me, it's pretty stupid, right? You could die of a heart attack. I mean, I guess you can too, but you know, you swim in 46 degree water, um, you know, there are, there are things that can go bad on you when yes. you first dip your head on it. Is, right? It is fraught with peril. <laughs> <laughs> At least you know, they would find you on the living room, right? At least, <laughs> me, I'm floating in the bottom. Okay. <laughs> but, but what it does exactly to your point is it gives you this and, and I'm going to go out on a limb here because I want your opinion on this. It's almost a braggadocious selfishness. Look at me. I can do this. You can't. That's one yes. element of it. There is a yeah, piece of it, that. It, it stays inside you. You know, it's not something you project onto people, but you are right. It's, it's something you carry with you to say, you know what? I can do that. And not very many people can, or not very many people would. And that is a powerful thing. As long as you're not projecting it onto people yeah, and, and say, I can go in cold water swims and you can, you know, well, that's, that's kind of crappy, but if you're doing it with yourself, I think that's awesome. What Michael Jordan was famous for manufacturing reasons to feel slighted by opponents totally. so that he could show them. And yeah. He never talked to him about it. Right. Totally. It was just, it's self-talk that if it works, man, all over it. And so what I'm hearing from you is that the key to the motivation, the key to the movement, the key to the forward momentum is obviously the action step. The, the purpose of the title of Motivation Myth is you will never be motivated waiting. This is my interpretation of it. Please, mm -hmm. ex please expand on it. You motivation will not come to you without some form of one foot in front of the other. Yep. There, it, if you're trying to achieve something big and difficult, you will never get the motivation you need up front to carry you the whole way through. You have to act and create your own and follow a process that allows you to keep getting those little dribbles of motivation that carry you from day to day. And then the, the other big thing to keep in mind, since we were both talking about you know, long-term things, is what also stops people oftentimes who think that they have to have all that motivation up front is if you've got a really big goal, the distance from here to there is huge. And if you pop your head up on day two and think, oh my gosh, I got to get all the way across there, that's incredibly defeating. Mm -hmm. So if you want to run a marathon and you never run and you go running for two days and each day you do a mile and you get home the second day and you're gassed and you've only done a mile and you go, oh my gosh, I got to run 26 of those. You're, you're going to quit. Yeah. But if you just say, my process today said I need to run a mile. 
And I did. Mm -hmm. And I get to feel good about myself because I did what I set out to do. And that's an easy way to feel good about yourself is to do what you set out to do. Keep your head down. Follow your process. One day you will pop up and look and say, you know, I just did 15 today. Mm -hmm. I'm getting there. That's Mm -hmm. really cool. I'm not going to look too closely at 26 yet. But you know, this thing is working and then it rolls on. It's the same thing with money though. Hate to relate yep. it back to the topic of the show. Oh no, but absolutely. I was about to, so please it, do. It is the exact same thing with money. You, you, you make the incremental steps. You're socking away. I call it in the book, the reserve account. You're stacking and racking cash in what I call accumulation mode. And then it's also like alcoholism too, by the way, which, which I had my <laughs> bout with. But you, you get to a point and the line crosses – and then you're way down on the other side of the line and you look back and you say, whoa, I actually mm-hmm. accumulated something. I actually mm-hmm. got some money. I can do stuff with this. Or conversely with booze where you're like, oh, it's just one, you know, and then right. it's two. Right. And then before you know it, you cross that line <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, I really need that one or two. So let me ask you yeah, a question. I, I totally agree with the money thing. Yeah. And it's the perfect analogy because if your goal is to say, put $20,000 away that you're going to invest in a business or whatever it may be, right. but you can only save, you know, 30 or 40 bucks a week or something. Yep. yep. You do that for a week or two and you've got a few hundred dollars and you think, Oh my gosh, I got to get to 20,000. You'll probably quit unless you're focused on, Hey, we put our 40 away. Yep. Awesome. Totally. Thumbs up. High five. Let's do it again next week. And that's that's how you accumulate. Not that people say you have to focus, you have to have laser-like focus on your end goal. And I think that's incredibly defeating at times because sometimes it's just too freaking far away. So Jeff, quick question on hacks. You gave this Michael Jordan hack where he's 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 picturing everyone wanting to get him, right? They're looking he's he's building this up in his mind. What are some of the other strategies that you have seen the most successful people that you analyzed in the book? What are some things that they've done that somebody who just struggles with motivation or getting going, creating action steps can start to do? I'll give you a couple that actually have research behind them. Um, one of them is not talking to your friends about your big goals in terms of thinking that you're going to get like peer pressure or they're going to support you and stuff. There's research that shows that, and I use the example in the book of hiking the Appalachian trail, which is near where I live. It's 2000 miles. It takes people four months, Mm. whatever. So if you tell people, Hey, I'm going to do that. And you start talking about all the cool stuff, you know, I'm going to have this outfit and I'm going to have this gear and I'm going to get a trail name. And you start talking about all those things. What happens is that you're already picturing yourself having completed it, and that actually gives you some of the fulfillment that you were expecting, and it means you are much less likely to do it. So if you want peer pressure to help you achieve your goals, tell people what your goal is very quickly, but then tell them your plan and have them hold you accountable for your plan. Mm. Because if you say, I'm going to run a marathon, and a month later somebody says, how's that going? You can say... Well, not very good. I've, you know, I've been sick. I've whatever, but I'm going to catch up. All right. But if your plan is I'm going to run five miles this week and 10 miles next week or whatever. And they say, did you run your five? Well, it's yeah. either yes or no. Right. <laughs> and you roll on. Mm. Um, another one is to use the power of the two words. I don't. So these researchers had people that they wanted them to, I think it was a fitness goal. They wanted them to achieve it. And so they had three groups. One was not giving it any kind of, given any kind of coping strategy at all to help them. One was told to say, if they wanted to like take the day off, I don't 
do that. And the other was told to say, I can't. So at the end of this period, out of the people that got no coping strategy, two out of 10 completed the goal. Out of the people that were told to say, I don't, eight out of 10 did. And the I can't was actually one out of 10. So mm. it was worse to say to yourself, I can't miss a workout than it was not to do anything at all. And the reason is I can't sounds powerful, but it gives you a choice because, well, I can't, but you know, I could because tomorrow I'll make it up or I'll do this or I'll do whatever. And you start to negotiate with yourself. Whereas I don't is an identity thing. It's I'm the, I'm not the person who does that. I don't do that. And therefore they were more likely to carry through. And if you want a simple way to look at that, do you have kids? I have three. Okay. Have you ever said to yourself, Hmm, do I need to take care of my kids? (laughs) You automatically do that because that is your identity. You are a parent and parents don't neglect their kids. It's the same thing with lots of other pursuits. If you say to yourself, you know, I don't, whatever it is, it could be waste money. It is, I don't make foolish investments. It is, I don't look leap before I look, whatever you want to come up with. If you make it an I don't, and you follow that for a while, in time, you actually become the thing that you were hoping to be. So if you are trying to run a marathon and you say to yourself, I don't miss workouts, and you do that for three or four weeks, suddenly you pop up and you're no longer a guy who's training for a marathon. You see yourself as a runner. And that identity thing makes it much less likely that you are going to change your behaviors, just like you with your parenting. So those are, if that's if that was good, those are two They're very great. simple things that work perfectly. And if I can give you one more. Sure. Time. The other thing that kills willpower is, like we talked about with can't, is decisions. So if it's something you're trying to do, create the least resistance to doing it that you possibly can. So for instance, for me, since my office is two, is a, my commute to my office is two flights of stairs. Mm-hmm. I, I set up the night before my most important thing to do the next day. I've got everything laid out I need. If it's books, if it's materials, whatever it is, it's all set up. I have a bottle of water on my desk. I have a protein bar on my desk. I get up within five minutes. All I do is brush my teeth. I am at my desk and I am working on my most important thing. Didn't have to decide to get started. Didn't have to decide what I'm going to eat. Didn't have to decide what I wanted to work on. It's right there. And it would actually be more effort for me to do something else than it is to do what's really important. And by taking all those decisions out, I actually get something good done. And then you know how it feels when you've done the thing you most wanted to accomplish that day, especially if it's early in the day, it's really exciting. And that creates that sense of momentum that immediately carries you on to what's next. And suddenly you have this really great day. Whereas if you ease your way in and you check your email and you decide what you want to work on, sooner or later you look up, it's 10 o'clock and you've dealt with things that felt urgent. I just used air quotes, but they're not important. And what you really want to do is what's important. So that would be one more. Yeah. Lifestyle by design on purpose. It's like what Nick Saban does. He eats the same breakfast and same lunch every day. So there are no distractions on his ability to focus in on what he's trying to achieve. I love that. Yeah. I think you have a certain number of decisions that you can make that require willpower a day. Some people it's greater than others. So if you can strip away the ones that are unimportant, like that's what he's basically doing. He's saying, okay, I don't want to have to decide what to eat for lunch. I'm just going to eat what, if I have this, I don't even have to decide. Of course. You know, it's, it's the whole thing about, it's the whole thing about choice architecture. If you want to drink more water, have four bottles of water on your desk or a glass of water on yours, like you have. And 
you're going to drink more water because mm. it's easier than getting up and going to get a soda. So two, two last things on this that I'd like to go on. Uh, tell me in your research what the importance of anger or proving someone wrong was in connection to achievement and staying motivated. I think that depends. That, that varies for different people. That's a big one for me. My favorite thing, although I don't like it, but it, it turns out to be my favorite thing is to be told I can't do something because mm-hmm. I will show you mm-hmm. <laughs> or I'll die trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think for some people that's awesome. And what it boils down to is if you think back to something you have done, if you're a listener and you think back to something that you've done that's hard, that you completed, think about what surrounded that. What were the conditions that existed then that caused that to happen? And if it was proving someone wrong, you know, you had a boss that told you you would never get promoted and, you, you know, you gave him, in your mind, you gave him the middle finger and said, I'll show you. And that helped fuel you. Cool. If it was something else, that's cool too. So different people respond differently. Like my wife doesn't respond at all to the I'll show you stuff. She doesn't care. She's got enough oomph in her that she's just going to achieve anyway. Mm. So it really does depend. But the important thing there is to actually look back and say, what conditions are the best for me to succeed? And then then you should replicate those. And most people do not. Most Mm. people just hope that things work out. But really, why wouldn't you construct the right environment that works for you. I, I say it to myself all the time. It doesn't have to be reality, right? I can manifest right. whatever environment that puts me in the peak state that I need to be in. Absolutely. Which, which actually, one of those environments, by the way, is triggering two, three, four minutes worth of some sort of motivation every day. That's cool. Now, one, one last thing that I think is really critical, because I guarantee you there are people, I talk about in my book called The Blamers, there are people uh, that say... I want to do this, but this person is keeping me down. How does someone who's in some sort of a toxic environment or relationship um, compartmentalize and continue to fuel despite the arrows or the daggers being thrown at them? Well, I guess the first question I would ask you is when people say that to you or people say that about themselves, how often do you think that's really the case? Yeah, it's a great or, or, is, super or is that an excuse? No, super rebuttal. Fantastic question. The, the answer is far less than they assume it to be the case. Right. So, so my, my answer to that would be, let's say that that is the case. Then take a clear-eyed, full hearts can't lose, whatever that Friday Night Lights thing was. Take a look at that and say, okay, what is the real situation there? I'll accept that. Let's pretend I can't change that. Then what else can I do that I control that will allow me to get to where I want to go. So if it's, I mean, the classic example, and I felt this way, I had a boss that I thought would never promote me. Sure. It was him. Wasn't me. Well, it was me, (laughs) but I was sure it was him, but nonetheless, I looked at it and said, okay. And I thought to myself, I'll show you, which was another one of those things that I do. But I looked around and said, okay, what are my other avenues that will get me to where I want to go? And so I did a little bit of networking. I volunteered in another department. I took on a leadership role that was kind of informal, but I knew it would be visible. I found other things that I knew would make me stand out so that even if he was never going to promote me, other people would notice. Well, as it turned out, he promoted me Mm. um, because finally I'd gotten off of my ass and actually shown some initiative as opposed to waiting to be plucked from the obscurity of mediocrity. But but Mm. nonetheless, you can, there's so much left that you can control. And so my 
my long-winded way around the barn southern boy answer to your question is fine look at what you can control and work your ass off of what you can control and almost always that will overcome whatever someone is doing to you the greatest moments i've had where my wife seemingly pushed back against me was because previous I had already failed at it, right? <laughs> she had already said, oh gosh, here he goes again, right? I've already seen this video. I don't need to see it again. Don't even start it. But I perceived it as she's keeping me down, right? Right, right. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, but I, in general, I think that other people influence or affect us much, much less than we, than we think they do. And we give people way too much credit for holding us back. We tend not to give people enough credit for helping us. And we give them way too much credit for holding us back. And if we just reverse that, man, your world would be a better place. And so would theirs. That's awesome. I love that as the finisher. Jeff, that was great conversation. I I thank you so much. I mean, it comes back to my primary thing. Your mama had it wrong when she told you the first step matters. The first step doesn't really matter that much. It's the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth step that really matters. Well, and I have to I have to thank you because I've read an advanced copy of your book and I have found several things that I'm going to do differently because of it. Oh, so sure. thank you for having me on. But more than that, thank you for writing that because I think it's great. Thank you a lot, Jeff. And I appreciate the, those words. They mean a lot to me. Again, that, that's that's all the little that I need. That See, that little bit carries me through the day. So, there you go. But I, I really congratulate you on the success of the book. Reviews are not um, easy to come by. And the amount of positive reviews and, and strongly positive and personal reviews, right? I mean, they're, they're basically reviewing your book saying, I like the guy who wrote it. <laughs> and and to me that's isn't that sort of what we're as a, as an author isn't that really what we're also hoping for we want the content to be meaningful and all the but we also want our delivery to be appreciated and enjoyed right well that happens though because you put your some of yourself in the book so it feels like it's been written by like me and same with yours your book feels like it was written by you because you've got stories and anecdotes and you're revealing things and you allow yourself to be vulnerable you know you, you talk about yourself and that helps frame some of your examples and people respond to that because they want to, they want to engage with people. They don't want to engage with the book. And so if you can be a person in your book, then so much the better for everybody. They love your book because of the storytelling in your book. It's a key, a key component constantly in your reviews. People like the stories that you told to connect to the messaging. Well, thank you. Congratulations on it, man. I wish you only the best. We're just getting started on that for you too, right? Your book officially launched when? Uh, January 9th. Yeah. So, I mean, you're having a lot of success in, in a month. I, I hope to duplicate that success. Actually, well, if, even if I had sold 2 million, I would wish it was three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm sure you're the same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I am. The only thing we realize when we tap our potential is that we got more potential. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Jeff, thanks a lot for being my guest on uh, you need more money podcast today. I'll thanks. see you down the road. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.